Hi guys and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast, the place for people who love British military history. Today I'm at the Clash of Empires exhibition here in London at the Royal Philatelic Society. This is my first podcast from here, but there are already two videos up on the Redcoat History YouTube channel, so if you want to see some of the items on display, check that out. There's also interviews already on there with Ian Knight and Lindizwe Ungobesi. Tickets can be booked via clashofempires.org and it goes on until the end of July, so there's still time to check it out. While you're in the mood for signing up for things, you might also wish to sign up for my newsletter over at redcoathistory.com newsletter. When you do so, you will receive a free copy of my ebook all about the Anglo-Zulu War. It's a cracking read, even if I say so myself. So today, I'm speaking with one of my favourite historians all about his new book on Lord Chelmsford. Chelmsford was the man who commanded the British forces during the Anglo-Zulu War. To some, he's a hero. To others, he will always be known as the man who lost the Battle of Isandlwana. Let's hear more. I'm John LeBand. I've been writing about the Anglo-Zulu War since about 1978. And Chelmsford is someone, obviously, who's been really in the foreground of this. And in the, in the past, I've had various efforts. I've done smaller works on Chelmsford, essays and edited his, his correspondence and that kind of thing. But now I've had the opportunity to write a full-scale biography of Chelmsford, his whole life, not just in Zululand, but right throughout his, his entire military career. And maybe we should start at the beginning then. Could you give us a sort of potted history of his own background yeah. bef before mm. the Ninth Cape Frontier War yeah. and before the Zulu War? How, yeah. did, he, how did he sort of rise through the, through the, through mm. the system? Yeah. He comes of a family of Germans, in fact, who emigrated to England in the 18th century. Um, oh, hence the name Thysiger. Uh, yeah, that's right. It's a good Saxon name, yeah. Um, and his, his grandfather um, became a plantation and slave owner in the West Indies. Um, unfortunately, it got hit by a volcano, so all of that went, got lost. And his father, with no inheritance, then became a lawyer and a very successful one, um, a very successful QC, and then Solicitor General and Attorney General and, and finally Lord Chancellor. So, and why he took the title of Chelmsford was that in Chelmsford he won a very important law case. So, so that's why the Lord Chelmsford. So, so Thesiger, in fact, is the son of a law lord as such, you know, of, of, a, of a Lord Chancellor. And he had a very orthodox upbringing, Eton, then, of course, bought his commission um, through his father's influence and friendship with the Duke of Wellington and all the rest of it. He got a commission into the Rifle Brigade. He then spent a year in Halifax. And that was a Nova very Scotia. prestigious unit, wasn't That's it? That's a very prestigious unit. But then, again, through influence and more money, he transferred into the Grenadier Guards, even more even prestigious. Even more prestigious, yeah. Then became ADC to the Lord Lieutenant in Ireland. And then, and then from there, in fact, he finally moved on to the Crimean, back, back to London to serve the, with the Grenadier Guards, and then off to the Crimean War. And so in, the Crimea would have been his first taste of combat? That's right, except there wasn't that much combat, as throughout all of that, he was a staff officer, first to the second division and then to headquarters. So, so he had a very comfortable time, basically, in the Crimea with the top brass. Um, he then went back to London, um, back to the Grenadier Guards, 
But then he did a nifty change, nifty exchange into the 95th Regiment, oh. in, um, which was pretty unusual. But the point is, he ex exchanged one rank up, as you could, from the Guards into a Lion Regiment. So now he's a Lieutenant Colonel in the 95th because he wanted to see active service in India. It's now the Indian Mutiny. Right, so we're talking 1857, 1858. Well, well, in fact, he goes there really at the end in 1859, in fact. He goes to the very end of it, um, and he actually gets involved in a battle, the Battle of Kundrai, as it so happens, a fairly small affair, but he's, he's given charge of some of the troops, some sort of independent field command in the battle. So that's his first taste of, of um, real powder, so to speak, where he does well. Then he goes back to the Bombay Presidency with the 95th Regiment, but then once again he moves on, become on the staff, in fact, of the general, of the officer commanding um, in the Bombay Presidency. And then from there he moves off to the Abyssinian Expedition, where, where Napier, in fact, General Napier is... Is that 1868? 1868, yeah, though he gets, this is right, so he's a very good, um, if you like, patron there because Napier becomes general officer commanding in India afterwards and Chelmsford moves along with him um, to become again to, to join to join join the staff you know at, at the at the very center of, of the Indian command. And would it be fair to say just to interrupt quickly that Abyssinia was very much a logisticians campaign was it, it not? Was, absolutely. So, so this was a good chance where he learned a lot about logistics? He did so, and this, in fact, is one of the ironies of the Anglo-Zulu War later on. You'd have thought he'd have learnt better in Abyssinia. But anyway, that, that's another question. But back to the staff, as I say, at the highest levels in India. And then when he gave up India, when that came to an end in 1872, he moved back to home commands in England, um, Shorncliffe and, and, then, and, and then others. And, and it was while he was holding these commands that... The general commanding in South Africa, General Cunningham, um, ran into problems, political problems with the Cape authorities and they decided to shift him off and replace him with somebody dependable. This is not a very important command. Um, they looked at a whole lot of other people, too important, not important enough, too old, too young, too this, too that. And Chelmsford seemed the right kind of officer and especially as he was so well established with the horse guards, the, the Duke of Cambridge was very much his patron, was pushing him the whole way through. So here it is, a good, conservative, well-known officer, well-liked at home, just the right kind of command to win this little frontier war and, and, and get it over with. So off, off to the Cape he goes. And then, so we get to the Ninth Cape Frontier yeah. War yeah. against the yeah. Hossa-speaking yeah. peoples. Yeah. How did he perform? Well. The first stage of the war, in fact, was over, the stage of some conventional conflicts. And by the time Chelmsford gets there, it's really a question of mopping up. And it's a question of mopping up in a way that the colonists suggest, rather than he would do it through his reading of military manuals. Now, Chelmsford was very much a professional soldier. Um, unlike other officers to be out getting drunk, he would be in the library reading the latest articles in Rusi Journal or whatever else it so might be. So quite rare for that era. Yeah, he was. I mean, he was very professional, if you like. But he always believed that even colonial wars should really be conducted like European wars. So in go the columns, in go all the rest of it, which isn't working in what are really, by this stage, counterinsurgency operations in the Amatola Mountains. 
and eventually he gets persuaded and divides the Amatola up into, if you like, watertight compartments and pacifies them one by one, um, pushing the, the um, Amatola by that stage up really to the end of the mountains, um, taking out the women and children, forcing them out of the areas they can't supply them and all the rest of it. So, so he wins the war ultimately in that way. And it does show something about Chelmsford that conventional as he was, he was willing to modify his tactics if required. And that's what he actually did in the Ninth Cape Frontier War, which did a lot for his confidence. Um, everybody thought he'd done well in the end. Um, he, he, gets, he gets knighted, um, you know, and everything seems to be going particularly well. Um, and he's like Cunningham, who he superseded in one other way, that the man in charge of operations in South Africa was a high commissioner, Sir Bartle Freer, and Chelmsford no more than Cunningham, was never making policy. He was simply following the commands, if you like, of, the, um, of, of, of Freire. And it was Freire's idea to take out the Zulu Kingdom, to really consolidate the whole Confederation prospect, get rid of enemies who might disturb it, this British rule over all of Southern Africa. So Chelmsford's job simply was to, okay, the High Commissioner wants a new campaign, you're the general officer commanding, off to Peter Maritzburg, you go, organize it, get it done with quickly, and we'll finish the whole Confederation project. So he gets these orders to invade Zululand. What, what's his plan and what's your assessment of his yeah. plan? Do you know, subsequently, um, the horse guards, when Chelmsford was very much on the carpet, were saying what was wrong with his plans. And they didn't like the idea that he decided to invade Zululand essentially in five separate columns, all converging on Ondini, HYO's principal place. Now, the argument was from the horse guards looking at Isantuana, well, all of these columns were too weak. They would have been defeated by the Zulu army. Chelmsford's rationale... They defeated in detail. They in, could have just taken one out at a time. That's right. But Chelmsford's argument, having seen what happened in the Eastern Cape against the Amakosa, was that a modern army with Martini Henry, Martini Henry rifles with seven pounders and all the rest of it, was capable of taking out any number of African foes. And the idea was to, in fact, to have small columns going in that would tempt the Zulu to attack them in force in the open. And you would be, then be expecting to, you would be expecting to defeat the Zulu in detail. Um, you also hope by having separate columns that this would do something to put the Zulu off attempting to attack Natal because they'd be coming through invading columns and this might dissuade them. So there was rationale there. The whole problem was, as the horse guards also finally decided, and many of Chelmsford's officers did as well, is that the, what ruined everything was the Ninth Cape Frontier War because that was too easy. And especially the very first conflict of the war, um, against Zahayo's homestead before the Battle of Santuana. That was an easy business. The Zulu were flushed out. Um, they, ah, said everybody, this is going to be just like fighting the Alcosa all over again. So it was total overconfidence and an expectation that you'd beat these guys no matter what. So that was the, really the crux of it. And that's what the horse guards decided in the end. It's this, this overconfidence that led to the future calamities. And obviously you've analysed, you know, all of his decisions of this mm. period. Mm. What do you make of his plan? You know, 
there is an irony that, again, this overconfidence. Isantuani could say the disaster there was dividing your force in the face of the enemy, leaving some of the camp going off on the reconnaissance in force. But on the very same day, General Wood had left part of his force in camp and gone off on an expedition, also divided his force. So that was the northern column up at Bemba's column. That's the northern column, yeah. yeah. And the coastal column, there it was in an ex drawn out, extended um, convoy where the, the rear of the convoy never even came into the battle anyway. This is at Niazane on the and same Niazane, day. Yeah. yeah, so if in fact the main Zulu army had attacked then, you would have expected the same result as at Isantuana, as at um, Upper Woods Camp. I mean, basically all the British commanders were lax about this. They expected it to be, to be easy. So, so that chills it in a way is not being unusual. Wood, who is a hero of the campaign, was doing exactly the same thing. So it was just luckier, maybe. It was just lucky in some ways. Um, though Chomsa, of course, had a great deal of ill luck, like the death of the Prince Imperial, for example, you know, things like that, which sort of really put a bad spin on the whole campaign. And Isandlwana itself, of course, there's a battle where he wasn't even present. One always forgets that. <laughs> so, That's true. So, you know, um, so ill luck did attend his campaign. But um, I think the problem is that, having suffered his Santuana, he then overreacted. After a period of a really of a nervous breakdown for a period, after a desperate call back to England for reinforcements, um, you then pull yourself together. And then it's so careful, because when you go off and relieve a shawi where the coastal column is being blockaded, you do it step by step. You lager every inch of the way. You don't fight in the open. You fight from behind a lager. Um, when you mount the second invasion, again, it is slow, slow, slow. I mean, his own, own motto was slow and steady wins the race, which is not that exciting, you know. Um, not exactly blitzkrieg, is it? No, no, it's really not. Except, of course, when he learned that he was going to be superseded, when he got the telegram um, finally on the 6th of June saying, by the way, Woolsey is coming out, he said, OK, I'm not listening to the telegram. And amazingly, he suddenly got into fifth gear and galloped off to Lundi to win his battle before Wolves could come in and steal his thunder. So, so there was a bit of ego at play there. Oh, there, there was a lot of ego there in the end. And I mean, I mean, his wife was, was writing to Wood, in fact, saying, you know, I hope, I hope he wins his battle before Wolves gets there. I mean, so there was a very conscious effort and his staff as well. We've got to do this before this horrible model of a major, modern major general actually arrives on the scene, you know. So, yeah. so we, we've touched on his Luana, of course. Mm. He wasn't there, as you say. But would you say the responsibility for the defeat lies mainly at his hands, or was it more mistakes made by, by those who were actually present, like Poulain and so yeah. forth? You know, it's part of the problem, again, is the Cape Frontier War, because their extended firing lines had been sufficient. Um, that's just what you had at the Santa Juana, but not sufficient against a, ma a major Zulu force coming in like this. On the other hand, Chelmsford, of course, put up this huge campaign to blame everybody except himself. Um, Poulain for his, his dispositions, um, Durnford for galloping in and then moving off on the right flank and pulling everyone behind him. And there is a certain degree of truth in all of that, of course, that, that if they'd consolidated, if they'd formed square, if they'd, they didn't even need the wagons, if they'd simply formed a large infantry square, that, as at Alundi, that would have been enough, actually, you know. Um, probably to hold the Zulu off. So, 
So there were mistakes made on the spot. But then you could say it is Chelmsford's fault for not giving better instructions, for not lagering the camp, um, you know, so, and indeed just for dividing his force in the face of the enemy, as they say. Not, not, not bright. So, so he has a certain responsibility, but obviously, as a general officer commanding, his is the ultimate responsibility. You can, you can try and shift the blame on the others. I mean, he even tried at one stage, or at least to push the blame onto Glynn, you know, who by that stage with a mere cipher and Chelmsford had taken over the actual command of the SIG, of the SIG third column from him. Um, so that you get this great effort, not me, not me, it's everybody else's fault. And this goes on even after the war. Which is usually the sign of a bad leader in any profession, isn't it? It is, actually, yeah. So that even after the end of the war, um, when there are attacks in the press, when there are attacks in the House of Commons, on he would go, saying, it's not my fault, it's all Durnford and Poulain. I mean, he, he never actually changed it. Um, no, he just wouldn't, in the end, really take, take, take responsibility for it. You know, there was this, this feeling that, I have this feeling that, obstinacy and self-defensiveness self like that really come out of a feeling of weakness and inadequacy and a knowledge that you didn't perform well so that you feel you can't give another inch before accepting your short failings. I, I think that that comes into play. So obviously eventually, you know, he, he led the British Army to victory at Alundi. Mm -hmm. The war was pretty much won after that mm -hmm. before he was um, forced to step, step aside. Mm -hmm. How did that affect his career? The fact that he had lost his Sandwana, but that had gone on to essentially win the war. What, what did that mean for his career afterwards? Yeah. Well, after Sandwana, there's the Horse Guards and the Israeli's cabinet um, decided, and the Queen got involved, um, decided not to get rid of him. But, but as things slowly went wrong, as a Prince Imperial got killed, which you know, made as much of a splash as Sandwana, as the Segn invasion was so terribly slow, all the logistics of it seemed to be failing. Um, the war was costing money. The government was losing prestige. That was a huge problem. Um, you get General Clifford, who's been sent out basically as his nanny, in charge of the lines of communication. He keeps on writing letters back saying, Chelmsford is making a mess of it. You know, the whole transport thing is really going wrong. You then get his conflict with the, gov with the, with the Lieutenant Governor of Natal, um, Sir Henry Bulwer, um, this is over the border levies, these Natal troops, mainly black. Um, Chelmsford wanted them to be used over the border in diversionary raids. Um, the Lieutenant Governor didn't want to antagonise the Zulu. And even though Chelmsford apparently agreed with Boer that he wouldn't use them, he did. <laughs> and this resulted in a correspondence, hundreds of written pages. And the Cabinet said, actually, enough of this. It's just like Cunningham back in the Cape with his conflicts with the local um, Cape authorities, we're having this all over again. So Chelmsford, one way or another, we've got to get rid of him. He's not winning the war fast enough. He's not explaining what really happened at Santa Juana because, interesting, all of Chelmsford's responses back to the horse guards, they were obfuscatory. Well, they had to be because he's trying to wriggle out of it and you know, find other scapegoats. They weren't content with that. And as the war wasn't being finished, I thought, we've got to get somebody who will just bring it to a head, so Woolsey was, was the man, you know. Yeah, so, and, and Chelmsford, in fact, he wasn't actually fired, he was simply subordinated to Woolsey. And this is the problem, he wouldn't take it. Now, General Buller, when he was subordinated to Roberts in the, in the Second Anglo-Boer War, 
He didn't go home and hang on for another year, in fact, commanding in the field in Natal. Chilmes said, well, I'm off. I'm resigning. Threw his toys out of the pram. Uh, and he flounced off as fast as he could go, which meant, in fact, that was the end of his military career. He never got another command. Um, he got offered some home commands, but they were very expensive. Um, Chilmes wanted to go back to India. They weren't interested in that. So he basically ended up as a courtier general. The Queen and the Prince of Wales were very keen on him. Um, became lieutenant of the Tower. He became um, colonel of the Second Horse Guards and did various other things. So and um, became um, gold stick, in fact, just before Queen Victoria died. This was carried on by Edward the, Edward the Seventh, so that he turned into a grand old man of, <laughs> of the army um, and a royal courtier, seen on all important occasions, you know, uh, on important royal occasions, but never again in the field. You know, that was finished. And having studied the man in depth for so many years, how would you assess his performance as a military commander? Mm. I know it's a big question. No, no, it's just, it's... If, if there hadn't been a Santuana and the war had gone more or less to plan, he would have been pretty unremarkable. And I doubt if we'd be having this interview because, you know, nothing special happened. It's, it's a sun. I mean, you're not interviewing me about the Ninth Cape Frontier War. You know, <laughs> um, you know, so I mean, the Zulu War was supposed to run like the Ninth Cape Frontier War, and it didn't. So it was a major disaster of Santa Luana, which put a whole new spin on it. And Chelmsford, who had spent his whole life as a highly successful staff officer um, and as a perfectly com competent field commander in the Ninth Cape Frontier War, um, you know, this really was the blight of his career. This was the disaster he couldn't get over. Um, it's interesting, the spy cartoon of Chelmsford in 1881 just simply has Isandula. And everybody would have known Isandula equals Chelmsford. And Chelmsford, he could say what he liked. He went to the grave as Isandula and that particular disaster. You know, and it's in the House of Lords, in fact, it was Field Marshal Lord Strathnairn, who in 1880, who had known Chelmsford from India. Um, when, in fact, Chelmsford had been a subordinate officer of General Rose, as he was then, um, and who liked Chelmsford and came from the same social class and all the rest of it, um, laid into him in the House of Lords. And Chelmsford, again, tried to blame everybody else except himself, very unsuccessfully. And Strathnairn, in the end, basically huffed and said, well, OK, if that's the way you want it, you know, but we're not buying it. Yep. Brilliant. And you've written a book about him that's yeah. now coming out. What's it's, it called and where people can, can, can they get hold of it? Yeah, it's called The Shadow of His Santa Luana. Um, the shadow, indeed, that, um, you know, followed Chelmsford to the end of his days. And um, Greenhill Books have published it. It has actually just appeared. So um, there it is. It's really the, it's the life of a Victorian general in the whole context of what it meant to be a career officer through purchase and through patronage and all the rest of it, through this career up to most, a good part of the book is all about the Zulu War campaign and Chelmsford's part in it. And then his afterlife, where he tried to live through the, the shame of this campaign, basically. He's great value, isn't he? I've purchased my signed copy of his book and can't wait to read it. 
Talking of books, actually, volume two of my Peninsula War series is now out and can be ordered in paperback on Amazon. Just search for my name, Christian Parkinson. I've also updated the paperback version of my Zulu War book with extra maps and illustrations, so feel free to search for those. All right, guys, I'll see you soon. If you do see me at the exhibition, then please come and say hi. I have a few Redcoat History t-shirts left, although they might all be gone by the time you listen to this. So just come and say hi and ask me for one, and if I've still got one, it's yours.